If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. When and why did espionage become professionalised? How did agents keep tabs on people in a time before high tech? And how have animals been used for spying? Those are just some of the questions that you sent to us to answer for today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode. Our expert is Michael Goodman, Professor of Intelligence and International Affairs at King's College London. And putting the questions to him was our digital editor, Eleanor Evans. For today's Everything You Wanted to Know About episode, I'm really pleased to welcome back Professor Michael Goodman, who is Professor of Intelligence and International Affairs at King's College London. And he'll be taking on your questions about the history of espionage. And as always, it's a really big topic, but we've had some really fantastic questions and we'll aim to pack in as much information as is possible and hopefully inspire you to find out plenty more about this topic after the episode. So, Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I had great fun doing the last one and uh, very excited to be here talking about espionage and intelligence. Absolutely. Well, our, our last episode um, that we spoke on was about the Cold War, and I'm sure uh, listeners will really want to check it out, out after this episode if they haven't already. But we've got plenty of Cold War stuff coming up in this one as well. But if we start with a broad one that came in on Instagram from uh, D Brown, who was asked, where does espionage get its name? Oh, that's a very good question. Gosh, and the simple answer is I don't know. Uh, I, I can reframe it. Where does intelligence get its name? 
um, which is also a slightly fudged answer. But if we go back to the uh, Elizabethan era, the 16th century, you know, the 1500s, Queen Elizabeth I, her principal intelligence officer was someone called uh, Sir Francis Walsingham. Um, and he inherited a small network of intelligence operatives across the across Europe, um, and they were known as intelligencers. Where that name came from, I have no idea. But I think that's where intelligence came from. But I also cannot confirm or deny that is actually true. <laughs> well, that leads us into, into a, another question we've had, which um, is how long do we think this practice of espionage has been going on? Uh, and Jessica Roberts has asked, does it come with a sense of nationalism or sovereignty? Has it always come with that sense or is it just part of human nature? Another good question. Um, you can go back to the Bible and there's a, there's a phrase in there which I shan't try and repeat verbatim, but it's all, you know, s- sending someone out to go and spy the, spy the land. Um, and so this this idea of you know gathering information covertly, gathering information on your adversary or on um, you know opponents of some sort, I think has been around for a very long time. We can go back; it rolls off the tongue. Thucydides, in I think the third or fourth century BC, uh, his history of the Peloponnesian War, uh, and the idea that one side wanted to gather intelligence on the other side's ships. Now, I don't think he used the word intelligence itself, but you know this idea that you want to find out what the other side is up to. It goes back thousands of years, basically. But as a form of statecraft, it's really only um, in the last 500 years or so that it it, it became a real thing. You know, as I mentioned, Elizabeth I's um, reign, there was what we might see consider a more formalised state-centric approach. And that was state-centric in two ways. One is that it was coordinated and run by someone within government. But actually, it was a function of government, and the information came back into government, as it were, and used. And so Walsingham, you know, the, the first spy master we, we like to think in the UK, was also effectively the Queen's foreign secretary, as we would understand it in today's jargon. So that, that link between intelligence and policy grew up there. But it grew up in a whole host of other countries. Um uh, in Venice, the Doge had the Council of Ten, and they were they were designed partly to look out for foreign threats and you know threats to the ruler and stuff. But in a more coordinated way, you know the, these are sort of quite sporadic episodes where they they uh, emerged, they existed, and then they sort of vanished again for one reason or another. Um, really, it was only in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, that it became much more widespread. That it became much more integral to state building and, and, and state governing and stuff. And, and nowadays, of course, it's, you know, very much commonplace. Absolutely. Well, we, we've got, got a question here from Hugh Birkmeyer on Facebook, who has asked exactly that. When did, when and why did espionage become professionalised? So perhaps we can talk about those, the formation of um, more organised efforts. Well, this is, this is, I, I, I will not say that every question is interesting, but this is another interesting question. So, um, and you know, academics always get fixated on words in questions. So the idea of the word professional, we can take that in two ways, I think. You know, one is, when did, uh, if we look at the example of, of the UK, when did we in the UK have uh, an intelligence structure that wasn't just, you know, there for something very specific that lasted where people were funded to work professionally in intelligence. And and really that goes back to um, 1909 in the most coherent sense when the Secret Service Bureau was set up, October 1909, which very quickly split into a domestic branch, MI5, uh, an overseas branch, MI6 as we would know it. Um, but actually back in October 1909 when it was set up, uh, each of the two heads w- were men. They were military 
officers and they shared a secretary. So, you know, we go back, we think about British intelligence today as this enormous effort. But actually, if we go back, you know, it was two men sharing a secretary and one of them, fantastically, I forget which year, I think it was the first year, 1909, wrote in his diary, Mansfield Cumming, the head of MI6, he, he was there, he kept a diary, he was sitting in his office and he recorded Christmas Day, had a nice lunch, didn't have very much to do, had a nap, something like that. But I think, just to go back to the sort of wording of the question, but the, the interesting thing is this word professional. So these were intelligence structures, they had people whose job was to work on intelligence, but actually... Uh, they didn't have any training particularly you know not certainly by non, by any modern standards they had they had a feeling for it you know they were they were recruited because they for mi5 they tended to be colonial policemen by and large who had experience of sort of police and then were thrown into domestic intelligence um those working in mi6 tended to have served in the military in one form or another almost all were independently wealthy in those early days and didn't really draw much salary so Cumming, the first chief of MI6, relied to quite a large extent on his own sort of personal fortune to um, to do things. So, and then there are two interesting episodes where actually the British intelligence machinery has used this word professionalise. How can we professionalise our cadre of intelligence officers? Once was in 1968, uh, very much to do with analysts and how do we make analysis better and how do we professionalise? And the view back then was professionalising is really a question of picking the right bright men. And of course it was, you know, by and large men back then. Um, and the idea was actually you didn't train an analyst, you could just pick them, you know, this nature-nurture debate, do you train or do you just pot someone good? And then the, the other much bigger effort is post-Iraq war, post what went on with the intelligence prior to the Iraq war, the year afterwards the former Cabinet Secretary Lord Butler wrote a report and a large part of that report was all about, you know, this had gone wrong, this has gone right, et cetera, et cetera. But what do we do about it? Uh, and part of that was all about professionalising the profession of intelligence analysis. Um, and that's been an ongoing process, which I think has, you know, has been a very successful one and a very long overdue one. So Indeed. So that takes us up to sort of more modern developments in espionage. But if I can step us back, Rob Kemp has asked on Twitter, uh, in the olden days, which I suppose can be taken uh, to mean quite a lot of times, um, how did agents uh, follow and keep tabs? As it's not like now where there's a digital trail or, or modern transport. Surely you would spot someone behind you on, on horseback or even on foot. So how did how did an, a, a, a spy sense that they were being followed? I suppose, and you know, there's the classical ones about pretending to tie your shoelace and sneakily glancing behind you, or the the very classic one, you know, walking walking down the road and stopping to look in a shop front and pretending to you know see what's in the display, but actually you're looking at the reflection in the glass and keeping a track of have I seen that person or though or that couple or. You know, do I recognise that that hat or those shoes or whatever? Which actually, by and large, you know, dig the digital era has, of course, changed that. But actually, if you're being physically followed, you know, you're still being physically followed. And, and technology has changed a lot of things, but there are some things which have remained remarkably consistent over 100 years. But I suspect people, certainly back in the olden days, wouldn't have thought about this quite so much. You know, the main thing was if you're if you're meeting your agents how can you check that you've not been followed to that meeting and how can they check they've not been followed to that meeting? And lots of very laborious procedures, I suppose, you know, in terms of 
going down lots of routes. There are lots of great spy stories that reveal this, you know, jumping on a tube train and just as the doors begin to close, very quickly jumping off again and seeing if someone else jumps off at the same time. So I think those are the, the sort of, some of the practical techniques that people would have used. Brilliant. And going back to um, Walsingham in the Elizabethan age, I guess there was a lot sort of tied up in mail as well and intercepting letters and secret documents and things like that. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, one of Walsingham's great achievements was interception. You know, his efforts were not just human intelligence, as it's called, running the running of human spies to gather information, but also interception of post, interception of letters and code breaking, of course, and very famously... Mary, Queen of Scots, her letters were intercepted and, you know, they they were uh, written in code and they were intercepted and, and, and um, deciphered and all the rest and, and revealed what was perceived to be a threat to the throne and, and for, you know, with very dire consequences, of course. Right. So if that's some of the tactics used in espionage and, and the business of it, perhaps we can go into um, the impact then. We've got a, a question here from Ed Wyman on Instagram. Thanks, Ed, who has asked, notable cases of spies who changed the outcome of conflicts. That's uh, it's it's one of those brilliant questions. And, and what you want, you know, the the, the difficulty always, and, and this is one of the great problems in, you know, writing about intelligence. You can write great spy stories, but the killer question is always, so what? You know, what difference did these spies make? And trying to work out the difference that spies make is often very, very hard because, you know, sometimes they were listened to, sometimes they weren't, sometimes it was too late, you know, sometimes the right decision was made regardless of what that was. But on the other hand, there are there are very definite examples. You know, we can point to perhaps the biggest, most strategic, you know, impact and look at World War II and look at the impact of not spies per se, but the impact of the breaking of the German codes, you know, the Enigma codes, reading those, being able to work out what the German military was up to before many in the German military knew what they were up to, gave the Allies a very, very definite advantage. And and that's led to a whole series of books and stuff about, you know, intelligence shortened the war by two years, three years, whatever it might be. We can look at, on the sort of more human side, we can look at a number of examples very, very specifically where you know, a spy has made a difference. We can look at the example of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the role of a Soviet GRU, which was military intelligence, uh, a colonel called Oleg Penkovsky, very well-known spy now, you know, back in the early 60s, extremely sensitive, of course. And Penkovsky was disgruntled at having been passed over for promotion. His his dad had been... Uh, in the Russian Civil War, which the Bolsheviks triumphed, you know, at the end, sort of end of World War One, um, his dad had been in, in the White Army, so he had opposed the Bolsheviks, and this had become known, and Penkovsky's career prospects were sort of limited, and as a colonel, he felt he should be a general, and he offered his services, he was jointly run quite uniquely back then, by uh, MI6 and the CIA at the same time. He was photographed wearing the general's uniform of the British Army, the general's uniform of the American Army. And he passed across for a quite short period, only sort of three years or so, in between volunteering and and being captured and, and executed. He passed across huge amounts of documents because he was the confidant of one of uh, uh, the marshal of Soviet artillery, I think. So he could pass across two things that were of great importance. One was technical manuals of Soviet rockets, 
which proved to be hugely important when, in 1962, the Soviets covertly transported missiles to the island of, of Cuba, 90 miles off the Florida coast. Um, and the Americans spotted these only after they began to be installed. And because of these technical manuals, they could see what these missiles were, whether the, their state of readiness, they knew that their, their range and all the rest of it. So that was very important. Uh, what Penkovsky also said very, very importantly was that Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, was basically a bit of a bully and operated on a policy of bluff. And, you know, like many bullies, the way to deal with a bully is to stand up to them. And, and, and so for Kennedy, he, he, he called Khrushchev's bluff in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's a bit over-egging the pudding, but one biography of Penkovsky calls him the spy that saved the world. Um, and we can, you know, we can look at other other... Examples too. The example of Oleg Gordievsky, a Soviet KGB officer recruited by Britain's intelligence service in, in the late 1970s, run into the 80s, became the head of the KGB station, the deputy and then the head of the KGB station in London in the early 80s, was hugely important in providing a whole ream of documents about how paranoid the Soviet leadership under Brezhnev had got at that time, passed across these great documents saying, you know, the Russians are terrified about a, a Western first nuclear strike and instructed KGB stations all around Europe to look out for signs that the West was were about to strike first. And so one of Gordievsky's missions was to look at the MOD building in London and, you know, were the lights on at night, which would suggest that something was going on. Was there an increase in uh, blood donations, which would suggest war was coming? And so, you know, it was very, very important uh, for helping interpret an, a NATO exercise, Able Archer, which the Russians misinterpreted. So, so lots of examples. Those are just two. I could wibble on all day, but I shall stop there. Well, so you've mentioned, uh, obviously, the Second World War, the Cold War. It sounds like, obviously, wartime is just huge in terms of driving advances in espionage forward. Are there any other factors that have sort of been at play in terms of countries developing spy networks and their um, espionage organisations? I think there are two answers to that. One is, I mean, these are sort of sweeping generalisations, but one is, you know, countries invariably construct intelligence agencies, either domestic or foreign, when there are threats, perceived or real. And um, you see that in two ways. You know, Britain in 1909 created an intelligence service because there was a great fear of the Germans of a sort of future war, but that there were German spies all around the countryside. And there were a series of books by a very popular author, whose name I have now completely forgotten, who wrote about these you know, these quaint English villages and stuff with German spies hiding behind hedges and stuff and listening to what was going on. And that paranoia grew to the extent that, you know, the systems were created. You can look at totalitarian states and often their intelligence services were were more domestic focused. You know, it was more about monitoring the population, watching out for signs of subversion. But fundamentally, both of those were about threats to the government, threats to the state itself, whether, you know, foreign, domestic, real or imagined. I think you see more recently, um, and it's particularly in countries where they have been dictatorships and have moved to democracies. So the sort of post-Soviet states of the 1990s, you know, lots of countries in the Middle East, for instance, and elsewhere. What's known as security sector reform, when, you know, new governments come in, democracies are being formed, it's often seen that security is part and parcel of the safety of that new state, of that new government. And, and often that's in the form of uh, the military and the police. 
but invariably it includes the intelligence agencies themselves. But fundamentally, in all countries, they are there to, you know, protect the country, to watch out from threats, as I say, for good or bad, you know. Uh, and so they're they're really wrapped up in, in the role of state building and state preservation. Although, of course, that does then, you know, bleed into being more offensive, I suppose, rather than defensive, if you want to think about it in that way. And you've already spoken about various tactics that could be used to sort of trace someone who's following you or checking out in shop windows, that sort of thing. But um, if we can return to use of technology, um, Tracy A on Instagram has asked, how has espionage or, or spying changed with the advance of technology? Yeah, well, I think we, we tend to fixate upon this now with, you know, cyber and computers and mobile phones and all the rest of it, thinking, you know, the, these are great differences. But actually, we can go back, I don't know, 100, 120 years, something like that. Whenever, whenever, I mean, I think the first big technological innovation that affected intelligence work was, was the innovation of, you know, Morse code, wireless transmissions. You go back to the turn of the century, 1900s, you know, thereabouts. Uh, and these great big wires that were set up in, in England, in France, and America to try and send messages wirelessly. You know, before that, you had these long cables that ran under seabeds and, and all the rest of it, which could be tapped into pretty easy because they were physical and, you, you know, you just had to find them and, and do something. Morse code, wireless communication changed all of that because all of a sudden you could send these things, you know, in the ether, in the airwaves, and it was much, much more complex to pluck them down. So actually one of the great sort of technological innovations for intelligence in World War One was code breaking. And it was all about how do we suck, you know, these messages out of the air. The, the Second World War saw equal innovations, you know, as I think in some ways intelligence often has to play catch up, you know, what is the threat? If the threat becomes more technical, you need technical means to do it. So World War II, which was very much a physicist's war in many ways, with lots of the technology being involved. Enigma, which we've spoken about, the, the code-breaking efforts, were, were very, very important. But actually, the Cold War, I think, was just as important, um, and I'll come on to cyber in a second, but the Cold War was just as important. Two main reasons. One, one was the innovation of computing and the fact that so much intelligence work was on computers, and that, of course, changed targets in some ways, but also you had the beginnings of computing powers for analytical processes and trying to, you know, sort of number crunch and do other things. But other things like high altitude photography, one of the great innovations, for, certainly by the Americans in the Cold War, was the use of satellites. You know, having having satellites hundreds of miles up in the atmosphere, being able to take photographs and recall number plates meant that you could do things and, and penetrate areas which humans just couldn't get to and, and, or not easily. And then, of course, you fast forward to the last 10 years or, or whatever it might be with cyber and the idea that actually you can remotely access things without needing humans. And, uh, uh, and that changes everything again. And it changes everything again, both in terms of gathering intelligence, but also analysing intelligence. And, and actually, if we look at what some people think will be the big innovation in the future is, is around computing and, you know, quantum computing and this idea that quantum computers are so powerful that they can go through, you know, you might have a password on your computer, which is total gibberish, which you could never guess in a million years. But actually, the power of quantum computing is so powerful that it can run through gazillions of combinations you know in the blink of an eye and actually that sort of changes everything that makes everything vulnerable and that will change how intelligence work has to function again 
But all of that said, all of that said, technology is great, but it, of course it still involves humans. And, you know, you need humans to program these things. You need humans to interpret these things. You still need humans, uh, as some uh, examples show, to physically get into, you know, plug in that USB thumb drive or to get access to that system. So this is not the end of the human, I don't think. And this is not the rise of the, the robots or anything like that. But But clearly innovations will have to be thought about and managed in the future so the james bonds of the future can take hope definitely yeah yeah we still need more (laughs) james bonds still to come on the history extra podcast one of the ways romans um used to covertly send messages that there were various things the cipher scroll the uh, sorry the caesar cipher and various other things have been used as sort of code breaking but actually what they one tactic was to get a slave shave their hair off, tattoo a message on their scalp, uh, wait for their hair to grow back, and then send them off to wherever. I mean, clearly this was not a method that could be used very often. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. So uh, going back to some of these individuals then, um, we've got a question here about recruitment and, and uh, how are spies recruited? That's come from Simon Beale on Twitter. Yeah, well, here is, here is you know, again, without wishing to be pedantic about terminology, here is the thing. What, what do we mean by spies? So we have fundamentally two quite different classes of people, I suppose. You know, one is the person who works for MI6. You know, they are an intelligence officer. They are there to recruit people to work illicitly, I suppose, covertly on behalf of British intelligence. And then you have the spies, you know, the people who they are relying upon to give them information. So if we take both of those, I mean, I suspect the question is about the latter, which are the people that, you know, betray the secrets and all the rest. But but if you go back to the former for a moment, the the intelligence professionals, the the old-fashioned way, of course, was the the tap on the shoulder, you know, the old boys' network, having a, a series of recruiters that would know what they were looking for and spot someone often at university and say, you know, we, we think, are you interested in a, a a fascinating job, you know, working overseas, 
making a difference, but we can't tell you about it and you can't talk about it and you can't shout about your successes. That, of course, is very different today. And, you know, now the agencies have open recruitments. They have lots of sort of careers fairs at various points almost they, they they sort of dial into those you know much more information about what's needed and that of course is very very important in a more modern diverse culture and you know the nature of intelligence work reflects society of course on the spies side of things you know that's where it gets much more juicy and interesting and it depends which side we're looking at so various people have tried to come up with taxonomies of how why people are recruited and you know they fall into two types. They either are volunteers who get in touch with the foreign service and say, you know, I want to come and work for you, or, or, or they're recruited, they're targeted and they're recruited. Uh, and these often fall, I mean, they're, they're, as I say, there are various taxonomies used. The, the simplest one, which has fallen out of a favour a little bit, but anyway, it conveys the gist of it, it, is the abbreviation MICE. You know, people either work for money, for ideology, they are coerced, or because of their ego. So, you know, Penkovsky, who we spoke about, thought he should be a general. His ego was bruised that he was only a colonel. And so he thought, you know, I'm going to go and work for people that appreciate me. The Cambridge Five, very, very well-known, very significant, very damaging spies who began in the 1930s, carried on until the sort of 50s, early 60s. They did it for ideological reasons. They passionate. These were Brits recruited at university, deeply devoted to communism and the Soviet cause, uh, who for ideological reasons, you know, betrayed whole hosts of people and operations. The Western services tend not to use coercion, but the, the Russians do, of course. And a very well-known case was a, was, was a, a naval clerk in the UK, someone called John Vassell in the early 60s who was homosexual at a time in the UK when it was illegal. You would have lost your security clearance had it been known that you were uh, homosexual. And he was photographed by the Russians. They lured him into a honey trap. He was photographed doing naughty things with another man and and basically blackmailed into working for the Russians. You know, he didn't want to work for them. He had no interest in them. He was not paid he was coerced and then there are there are classic examples you know uh, uh, probably one of the most destructive damaging devastating spies of all time um someone called aldrich ames a cia officer who worked from the mid 80s up until the early to mid 90s did it purely for money he he was in debt his second wife, I think, was very fond of splashing the cash and he couldn't afford it on his salary. And he thought, how can I get out of this? I can give documents to the Russians. And and, and once you're in and once you're sucked in, you know, he was paid millions of dollars, you know, back in 1980s money. We're not even talking uh, 2020s money. Millions of dollars. Didn't do it because he loved the Russians particularly, you know, carried on doing it after communism fell. Pure and simple for money. And, and so... People do it for different reasons. Sometimes they volunteer themselves and they're often thought to be the, the better ones, although you still have to be very careful for double agents, which we might come on to. Uh, sometimes they're recruited because it's seen that there's, you know, something in them that makes them vulnerable to recruitment, open to recruitment. But but invariably they they sort of factor around those those four main areas and they, they have waxed and waned over time. 
Fantastic. Lots of very interesting motivations there. And all of the spies that we've talked about uh, so far, they have, have been men. And it sounds like obviously there are this, this history is certainly swayed towards towards men. But we have also had a lot of questions about women's involvement in espionage over history. And a specific question on that from Nearly Breathless Nick on Instagram has asked, are women spies a recent phenomenon, uh, i.e. the last 200 years or so, or is this a misconception? Oh, recent. So so we talked about old, old before and now we're talking about recent being in the last 200 hundred years i think they are in the last 200 years off the top of my head i I, i'm happy to be completely disproven but on the top of my head i can think of no you know well-known spy cases older than 200 years women were targets you know mary queen of scots for instance but but not as sort of significant operatives or anything else i think the role of women is fascinating and you know, the, the the modern intelligence service is completely different to the intelligence service of World War II or, or, or early Cold War. Let me give you three examples, three examples of where women, I think, have played a great role. One of them goes back to the First World War, emulated in the Second World War, uh, the 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 Don, Don Blanche network, you know, the, the white lady, white uh, women network. Um, and that was a series of people in World War One. I think in Belgium, I, I, I don't remember precisely, but their job, you know, thrilling, was to monitor trains and to watch trains and they would sort of sit there knitting and doing other very exciting things while covertly seeing trains. And actually, it was a fantastically useful one because sometimes you get spies where they provide, you know, a document which changes the course of history, but sometimes you need to monitor things over a long period of time and watch for trends. And and actually what this network could do was monitor supply routes, armaments, you know, munitions over a long period of time and could really notice trends. And that was very, very important. The second example are, are, are females used in the spy business. You know, either, for instance, there's a very well-known one called Daphne Park, who is, you know, Britain's... I don't know if she was Britain's first spy, but certainly she was the most senior spy that rose up through the ranks. And there's there's a good biography of her, Baroness Daphne Park. Of course, we've had uh, two female heads of the security service, MI5, uh, and people, uh, uh, you know, female spies have become much more significant. And I think there's, but I think there's a third network, and that that's the sort of support bit of spying. So, for instance, we spoke about Oleg Penkovsky, this this Soviet colonel in the early 1960s. In Moscow, he was run by uh, the MI6 officer, but also importantly, the MI6 officer's wife. So she would go to park benches, pushing her pram with, you know, small children in tow and would would be used in espionage for that purpose. And actually, there's, there's a sort of growing number of books particularly written by women focusing on the sort of early middle Cold War, Cold War period, particularly wives of CIA officers, that talk about their role in supporting their husbands in the spy business. So I think, you know, women are the, the sort of hidden aspect of all of this. And, and, and it's the modern era, you know, the last 20 years is very, very different to the, the, the earlier period. But actually the scholarship is beginning to change as well. Um, and I'm, you know, very proud to be involved with, a, with something called the Women's Intelligence Network, which is a group of now 200 academics, I think, which are really trying to bring attention to the crucial role played by women, which historically has been smaller. You know, we can't sugarcoat that, but nonetheless, very, very significant. And, and so I think scholarship is beginning to change slowly but surely on that. 
And where can people go to find out a bit more about that network or the other sort of histories that haven't been as visible or have been sort of pushed to the margins in this topic? Yeah, well, if I'm allowed to plug just a little bit, I mean, if people are look, happy to look up the, the King's Intelligence and Security Group, which we have as part of War Studies in King's College London, um, we, we have an external web page and there is information on there on the women women in intelligence network and there, there's there's mailing list details there i'm happy for people to email me directly if they want to about this and i'm particularly delighted to announce that we're actually just about to launch a prize i i, I had a fantastically good phd student who unfortunately passed away a year or two back from cancer but she was passionate about this idea of you know women and intelligence and gave lectures to our students she's she's inspired a number of students who are now coming on to do phds and together with the leading academic journal on intelligence one called intelligence and national security we're, we're creating a prize in her honor the polly corrigan prize which we're going to be launching next work next year um, and that is really dedicated to supporting scholarship on on women and by women uh, and fundamentally, it's an area which we're very keen, you know, certainly in, at King's, but broad, more broadly, to to expand and grow. And I think it's it's a great thing. That does sound great indeed. Well, I hope listeners will go and check that out for sure. If we can move on then to uh, some other sort of tactics uh, that are perhaps perceived to have been used by spies through history. Um, we've got a question by Jen M. Kerry on Instagram, who has asked about the best disguises used. Can we talk about a few instances of those that are known about? Uh, yes, well, I, you know, disguises go back a very long time. You go back to the Roman era, and uh, y- you know, characteristic of the time, I suppose. One of the ways that Romans um, used to covertly send messages that there were various things: the cipher scroll, the uh, sorry, the Caesar cipher, and various other things have been used as sort of code breaking. But actually, what they w- one tactic was to get a slave, shave their hair off tattoo a message on their scalp, uh, wait for their hair to grow back, and then send them off to wherever. I mean, clearly this was not a method that could be used very often because, you know, uh, scalps aren't very... Uh, anyway, so that's a sort of funny way of using disguise. And actually, if you... Uh, uh, there was a very famous uh, British intelligence officer, Paul Dukes, who was uh, around the, the just after the First World War as the Bolshevik Revolution took hold and, you know, the questions about what, the, what these Russians were up to. Um, in 1918, went over to Russia and in his memoir includes a photograph section of him in costume. And I think there are four photographs of him wearing funny costumes in there. But I think probably the much better known stuff that, that, uh, is later on. And, and there's a um, now deceased American CIA chap who is, I don't know his formal title, but effectively in charge of their disguise bit of the CIA, someone called Tony Mendez. And he, he, he came to fame through the film Argo, I think it was, where about the CIA, and actually he 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 had been the one behind that in real life, disguising, uh, coming up with disguises and masks and all the rest of it to just capture. So I can't I can't give you any sort of great examples of masks and other things being used, but certainly disguise has been, you know, very very important, and it's not just putting on dark glasses or or putting on a a funny hat or anything. You know, there have been much more elaborate ways to disguise things, and also disguising intelligence operations you know there's there's the famous one which was uh, emerged 10 years ago 15 years ago i can't remember now 
called the Moscow Rock, where the Russians make great play of the fact that they had discovered a pretend rock in a mar- in a park in Moscow, which they claimed had been used for an intelligence operation. Uh, and gadgets are great. Sorry, now sort of moving subject, but gadgets are great. And you, uh, you know, lots of museum exhibitions have these spy gadgets. You know, a, 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 a lipstick thing which actually is a gun, or, or um, spikes in shoes which can shoot out when you want to kick someone and inject them with poison or the example of a Bulgarian dissident, Georgi Markov, who was assassinated on a bridge, uh, Waterloo Bridge in central London in the late 70s by an umbrella which had ricin in the tip of it and he was poked in the back of his calf, I think, uh, and injected and subsequently died. So disguise is great, you know, for people, for gadgets. It's, it's long been a part of intelligence work and I'm sure will continue into the future. So not regard, uh, not relegated to Q's offices in the Bond films. These gadgets are are very, very real stuff. Very real stuff indeed. And there are whole books you can buy on, you know, spy gadgets and stuff. Can you think of any that our listeners might be into off the top of your head? Um, well, if, uh, uh, I mean, if, I think two things. There's um, The Imperial War Museum used to have a, a whole exhibition all about spies and that had a whole host of gadgets. Even more impressive is the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., which has more gadgets than you could ever hope to consider. But, I mean, I think the, the, the lipstick tube, which is really a gun, is perhaps the most, the most well-known. But also very clever ways of miniaturising cameras. So if you had, a, you know, a, an agent in place, you wanted them to be able to take photographs of documents, how could you get a camera small enough that no one would ever spot it? And, you know, could you put those in in a lipstick tube or in a pen or whatever else? And the the, the Q branch, as it were, has had, had been fantastically creative over the years. Cool. These innovations are all very, very interesting. And Julie Brummel on Instagram has posed a really interesting one about s- some of that technology. Uh, are there any things that we would use today in everyday life that were invented or developed for espionage? Oh, that's a great question. I'll have to think about that one. I mean, I, I think what I would say some of the some of the camera innovations over the years and the way that technology has shrunk probably owes its origins to government work once upon a time but i can't i can't give you a sort of very specific example of one but it's a brilliant question yeah that makes a lot of sense and i i really like that question too we've got some questions here on double and triple agents now you, you mentioned this a little bit when you were talking about spies various motivations but could we perhaps hear from you some examples of um, famous uh double or uh, agents who had multiple motivations yeah, so double agents are the most complex when someone offers their, you know, let's say, for example, a KGB officer offers their services to the CIA and says, I want to defect, I want to give you all the information. And of course, the question then is, well, is this person genuine or are they are they a plant? Are they a double agent? And a double agent is someone who's pretending to offer their services, but actually is still secretly working for the KGB. And what they're trying to do is sow disinformation and to you know, throw people off the scent. Uh, And one of the most well-known examples of this, and there are still question marks depending on you ask, although I think it's sort of been resolved, was a KGB officer in the early 1960s called Yuri Nazenko. And Nazenko volunteered his services and the CIA were unsure about whether he was genuine or not. And the reason they were unsure about why he was genuine or not is there had been earlier defector called uh, Galitzin, 
uh, another KGB defector. And Galitzin had come across to the US. He had been completely believed. But what he had said was something along the lines of, there will be more defectors after me, but they won't be real defectors. Their job is to discredit me by giving you information at, so that therefore you doubt what I'm saying. And Galitzin was believed. And three years, I think, or so after him, Nazenko volunteered. And Nazenko had good information, but but there were some question marks over some of the detail. And when they drilled down into the detail, there were, some of it couldn't be resolved. And he was initially believed... And then the CIA completely changed their minds and they locked him up in effectively a concrete prison cell for uh, some time. He was then locked up effectively in the sort of attic of a building for some time because they thought he was not real. They thought he was a double agent. And it was only much later that people actually began to believe him. He was given a very large financial settlement from the US government as a sort of form of apology. But actually, there are still people, there are you know books about this, there are still people that say actually he was not, because if you look at the very specific information he provided, it doesn't quite add up. And that's often one of the great difficulties is, you know, if someone volunteers their services, are they genuine or not? And that's where we get into the whole complex sort of paranoid world of counterintelligence, which is all about stopping your own your own side being recruited by the other side. But it's also looking at people and saying, you know, are they genuine? Are they really who they say they are? How does this fit in with everything we know? And it's it's a very paranoid world because at one level you sort of have to mistrust and question everything. So we've got a question here about punishment uh, from Agrobiodiverse on Twitter, who has asked, have spies always been punished especially harshly when caught? Which I guess we could broaden out to talk more broadly about the ramifications for spies who are uncovered. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a good question, and um, it poses lots of... I mean, two elements to this. One, one is the punishment, absolutely, and the other one is the sort of ethical-moral dilemma of this. So let, let's take someone like... There was, a, there was a, a Soviet general who was given the codename... Lots of codenames, but given the codename Top Hat. He was run by the CIA, run by the FBI. The, the CIA and the FBI, you know, long said to him, whenever you're ready to defect you know we will we will get you out we will put you in a big house you'll have more money than you ever need to live on you've been giving us information for 30 years uh, and all the rest of it someone called polyakov um and he said i love russia why would i want to defect and he poses fantastic ethical and moral questions and for him he was a great russian nationalist he just hated the soviet government and I think it poses fascinating questions. You know, what is, what is a traitor? Is, is a traitor someone who goes against the government? Is it Do they go against the country? He firmly believed by giving information to the US, he was helping Russia because he wanted to see the downfall of the Russian government, uh, of the Soviet government. Uh, and he was eventually given away by Aldrich Ames, given away by Robert Hansen. Uh, he had retired. He had been three, four, five years out of government. He was no longer active, but he was caught, he was interrogated, he was executed. And historically, the Soviets would execute their spies. You know, if they if they were if they were caught, if they were known about, they were sometimes put on sort of show trials like Penkovsky was in the early 1960s, and uh, and you can find photographs of line online of him uh, at his trial. They were invariably taken uh, to the the sort of courtyard of the Lubyanka, forced to kneel down, shot through the back of the head. 
very different in in, in the West. Some spies were executed in World War One, World War Two. The German spies in the UK were rounded up and they were given a choice. You work for us or you're executed. And they were, the, the majority were executed. That's very different to saying, you know, what about the Brits, for instance, who worked for the Soviet Union, who spied for the Russians? None of those were executed. They were given prison sentences, very long prison sentences for some of them, but, but they were then allowed to, you know, leave. The Americans, the last spy executed by the Americans, i.e. an American working for the other side, were, were the Rosenbergs in the early 1950s. Both were sent to the electric chair. Both have been the subject of lots of attention, not because their espionage is doubted. You know, they, they, they clearly were American spying for the Russians, but whether their espionage warranted execution, because actually they were quite low-level spies, you know, they did pass across information, but it was technical information. They didn't betray agents. Their information did not lead to the deaths of others, but they were they were sent to the electric chair. So in the West, the sentence really has been a prison sentence. And someone like Aldrich Ames, you know, a thoroughly vile human who spied completely for money, unquestionably betrayed scores of agents who were then executed by the Russians... He is in prison. He has been in prison since the mid-1990s. He presumably will never be released. Certainly his prison sentence is one he'll never be released. Um, so I think, you know, very long-winded answer, but I, but I think there's a fascinating, fascinating ethical moral question in all of this, you know, whether they were actually betraying their country in, in, in one sense, and you could argue it both ways. Um, but but the, the response has been very different depending on the country, and other countries have executed spies. If I can pick up on what you said about spies' motivations and, and how much we know about them now, Adam Hillhouse on Facebook has asked uh, about that future sort of knowledge. Will the identities of most successful spies always remain a secret or are they eventually always revealed by history? I, I, I would say it's a bit of both. You know, the very well-known human spies, I think, are well-known. You know, the, the uh, and we can rule the names and I, I, I've gone through a lot of them. On the other hand, there's a sort of grey area where it's known there are spies, but not their actual identities. For instance, in the in the sort of latter half of World War II, up until the late 40s or so, there was a, U, a combined US-UK code-breaking programme called Venona, which intercepted lots of Soviet communications, knew about lots of Brits and Americans spying for the Russians, but they were all referred to by code name. And actually, even now not all of them have been identified. Some of the very well-known ones were Donald McLean, one of the Cambridge Five, was identified. Uh, Klaus Fuchs, a nuclear scientist, was identified. But a number of others were not. And so it's known there are some, and the Russians have never never revealed those. Um, on the other hand, there are lots and lots of sort of lower-level spies that have never really become known. Uh, lots of them that we perhaps do know about, but actually their, their sort of contribution in the nicest sense was marginal and so we we don't always know about them um and, and these often come out from a variety of ways you know sometimes people reveal it themselves sometimes they're revealed by accident sometimes the the country claiming that spy will reveal it sometimes the country wanting to disown that spy will reveal it so there's no hard and fast rule but but the bigger ones tend to sneak out I mean, I could say that, of course, and tomorrow we could find out there's this great spy that we've never heard about that changes everything we've ever known. But but certainly I think that the big ones, you know, the big ones of World War II are definitely known about. The big ones of Cold War are sort of broadly known about. But that 
doesn't, of course, stop the uh, the rumor mills turning. You know, there are there are lots of rumors, and the great thing about conspiracy theories is you can never effectively prove them or disprove them. You know, lots of queries. Was Canaris, the uh, admiral in charge of the Abwehr in World War II, was he really a British spy? Lots of people think so, but was he really? Lots of people have written about how uh, Sir Roger Hollis, the director general of MI5, sort of midway through the Cold War, was he a Soviet spy? The balance of likelihood is no, but that hasn't stopped some people arguing that he was. And then the counter-argument was, is, of course, well, if he... If he was a spy, why have the Russians not claimed him? Surely they would claim a triumph like that. And so you get into this, you know, smoke and mirrors, what's true, what's not true. And that's what makes the subject fascinating, I think. Yes, incredibly fascinating. And I guess we just, we don't know what we don't know, which is, um, yeah, tantalising possibility. So um, we've got another one from uh, Julie Brummel, which is such a fun one. I can't not ask it, although I'm not sure if there is an answer. But they've asked about animals uh, use in spying. Has, have there ever been animals ever used for espionage? And what's the, perhaps the weirdest case? Oh, well, now my... This will sound like a completely niche random answer. My my, f- <laughs> my favourite subcommittee... It's such a great party question, isn't it? What's your favourite subcommittee of government? Well, hmm. my favourite subcommittee was a Joint Intelligence Committee subcommittee, which was created in the late 1940s, and it was the Subcommittee on Carrier Pigeons. And the idea back then was, you know, rewind to the late 1940s, of course, the great fear was a nuclear war. If there was a nuclear war, or if the Russians somehow knocked out our communication system, how might we communicate? And the answer was homing pigeons which um certainly when i was young i remember seeing whole van loads of these things and people you know letting them loose i'm sure they still do anyway this was a subcommittee designed to look at carrier pigeons and, and i'm sure there is a special name for someone who likes homing pigeons and this was designed saying you know can we set up a network within the uk of carrier pigeons that can carry secret messages strapped to their legs if war comes and uh you know it, it existed for a few years and then disappeared. Um, actually, Gordon Carrera, the BBC's security cons- correspondent, has written a whole book about pigeons and sort of war and intelligence. So if this whets anyone's appetite, I'd encourage them to go and go and read his book. More broadly, animals in war is a well-known, well-known thing. It's, it, it's quite widely studied. Animals in intelligence has been much less well-known. No no sort of other examples spring to mind other than there have been various attempts, you know, not strictly by the intelligence community, but to make things like tiny little drones look like a fly or something like that. So can you, you know, send a tiny camera into someone's room and they'll think it's a fly, but actually it's a very clever little drone. But other than those, nothing, nothing, nothing comes to mind. But it's a good research area. Yeah, interesting. And I'm slightly disappointed there was no answer on COVID crocodiles or something. But yeah. Oh, you just um, reminded me. We can't have it all. No, there were. There were. Not crocodiles. No, dolphins, I think. The Russians had a special team of trained dolphins, which they they strapped technical equipment. I think, was it sonar equipment or camera, something like that? So these dolphins would swim under, you know, naval vessels, submarines, whatever it might be, and they would come back. It, w- it was in the press a couple of years ago, and I've now completely forgotten the name of it. But I-, I think you could find it if you look online, the- these, you know, s- dolphin spies. It was something like that, this Russian thing. But yeah, not as good as crocodiles, though. 
Well, I know what I'm doing after this interview. I'm going to go and Google the spy dolphins for sure. Um, so yeah, great question. Thank you very much for that, Julie. And I think uh, we're probably sort of wrapping up our questions now. Turning to then, uh, lots of people will have probably come to the world of espionage through examples in popular culture. And we've just had a big James Bond movie out, which um, again has uh, returned people to thinking about uh, espionage and particularly sort of in the 20th century and its development. Uh, Lorna Metcalf on Facebook has asked when did it become glamorous <laughs> um that's a good question i mean i suppose some people wouldn't claim it to be glamorous because you know myth and reality are not always the same thing sadly i i uh, uh, am yet to meet anyone who was given an aston martin to drive as part of the job I don't know when it became glamorous in that sense, but I think the sort of public portrayal of intelligence goes back a long way. You know, the uh, as I said earlier, there, there, there were lots of books before the First World War, before the creation of the Secret Service Bureau, about German spies. And, you know, the idea of writing literature on espionage goes back to the 19th century and, and very famous books, you know, lots of famous books that emerged in the sort of before the Second World War. I suppose it really, really became mainstream with things like Ian Fleming's James Bond, with, with, with you know, John le Carre's books, with other authors. And uh, I think those are great. You know, the escapism is brilliant. Whether they're real, whether they reflect the reality in some ways isn't the point because they're just great books and great films and all the rest. And, you know, actually, if that prompts people to want to do this sort of thing, then is that necessarily a bad thing? I suppose maybe then they're a bit disillusioned when they see the reality. But, you know, actually, if it gets people interested in it, then that's not a bad thing, I don't think. Yes, indeed. And for anyone who has listened along to this uh, episode and would like to find out more, you've um, already mentioned some brilliant sources throughout, but where should people, where can people turn to next? Yes, well, um, there is a sort of burgeoning academic literature on intelligence and you know there are master's degree courses the master's degree we run at king's has 100 students a year so it's very very popular i think if you go into any branch of waterstones or any other you know high street bookshop there is invariably a section on espionage and intelligence that that is there next to the military section usually i i think what what i would urge people to do you know the the great stories of the sort of sexy spy stories you know spy x that did this and they're great but i would go back to one of your, the one of the questions that one of your um listeners posed right near the start which is you know this one about what difference did it make and i think the spy stories are fantastic but for me, just as important is this so what question. You know, what difference did it actually make? We can see Person X provided all of this great information and, and great stories and all the rest. But, you know, was it used in government? Was it used by the military? Did it make any difference? So this is not really answering your question in any great shape or form. But I think there are lots of places you could start. And certainly if you're interested in British intelligence, probably the, the authorised or official histories of uh, MI5, MI6... GCHQ, and of course, the one I authored on the Joint Intelligence Committee, which is fascinating, um, are perhaps some of the better places to start. But there's there's a, there's a million and one things, and I would just urge people to, you know, pick up books and read, and that's probably as good a place as any to get cracking with this stuff. That was Michael Goodman, Professor of Intelligence and International Affairs at King's College London. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.